From the purple mountains and the valley of smoke, this is OU Radio. This is ours. And it hurts so good. Welcome back to Old Ute Radio, episode 116. I'm Johnny McKeon. With me in studio always is my friend Sasha Bloom. And with us is our guest, Brian Higgins. Uh, first of all, you can find me on Twitter, at Johnny McKeon. You can find Sasha. Where are you at? Uh, Mr. Underscore Bloom, sir. And then, uh, Brian, uh, where's your Twitter at? I am uh, Twitter virgin. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tried to get on it, but I just can't. It's just so hard for me to, to work it out. Like... Uh, and as I keep moving along in my trajectory, then I'll have people that'll deal with that for me. Yeah, definitely, so, definitely. But if you want to get me, get me uh, Facebook. Okay. Against Facebook. Awesome. So, Brian, you grew up originally in Belfast. Yes. Uh, so, what what was that like? It was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so, yeah, because you, you grew up in the middle of the conflict, right? What, what year were you born? Uh, 77. So, oh, so okay. I'm, I was so, right yeah. there, you know. Yeah, you my, were right there in the thick of it. Yeah, my entire life. Uh, until I left um, uh, for America was was just pure, you know, the troubles left, right, and center. Yeah. And one of my one of my mates in in Salt Lake had a laugh with me the other week and said, you know, for all the issues, you know, it's just like it's, it's all sectarian and, and it's all like uh, violence, killing, you know, a uh, very historical conflict. But it is, you know, uh, women and children, bombings, blah blah blah. And he said, for all the awfulness of it, we chose to call it the troubles. Yeah. You know, which means it's like, it's something like, I'm just having a bit of trouble with my wife. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it's not really, it doesn't really. <laughs> I'm having a little bit of trouble it, with my car. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like a conflict that's been going on for like 400, 500 years. And we decide that oh, it's just the troubles. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so what exactly is the conflict? Well, it all comes down to it's religion based. It's basically what any conflict is these days um, or in, in through history, but it, it's Catholic Protestant. And if you really want a history lesson, we can go right the way back to the beginning. Okay, yeah. Um, and don't, you know, again, this is, I try not to be biased in it. I try to give both sides of the story because uh, I do, like, I'm from, I'm sort of from, like, I, I'm not I'm not religious anymore, and I never really was. I was just raised in a Protestant community. Yeah. And basically, you are, you're either a Catholic or a Protestant community back home. You can't really decide, oh, well, it's religious-based, You like, you are in this specific base. And there's no, um, it's very segregated, nobody sort of joins in or anything and this mm-hmm. goes way way back to the 11th century oh wow you know when you've got your everyone lives in their respective villages and there's no way in this world that you are ever going to go and marry the girl from the other village yeah you know you're not going to mix so in the gene pool you know it was just protestants marry protestants protestant Protestant, catholic catholic catholic, catholic. so our whole facial structure our whole genealogy is um i don't even know if genealogy is the right word but our whole uh, genetics, genetics yeah, yeah. is um, has never really changed so that's why 
I look like Liam Neeson. <laughs> you do a little <laughs> you bit. You know, and uh, <laughs> Liam Neeson adjacent, like yeah. you're close, yeah. And and because we've all got that same structure, because there was never any, you know, um, cross pollination, basically. So that's that's just an interesting thing that, that I come up with. But so, but we'll get back to Liam Neeson down the line. <laughs> uh, so basically, what it was was, and again, this is just my understanding of yeah. it. Like it's it's all over the place. It's like with any history, it changes and it's all mythology, whatever. But my understanding is. With geography and history, whatever I tell you, fair play. If you're interested, go and read up and get your other versions and then make your own decisions. But so way back in the days, in the ninth century, whatever, England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland was all one. You know, they were not not the landmass. We were disconnected, but we were one. You were united. Yeah. Yeah. And that was what the United Kingdom was in Great Britain. When the Romans came over, you know, and did all this stuff and brought them all together. Uh, and then it, it comes along into the, the 10th century in the Middle Ages, and we've got Henry VIII, you know. And uh, so, again, everyone's together. There's a lot of, you know, as, as we all know from Braveheart, you know, the English go and try and <laughs> invade Scotland and, yep. you know, all that type of stuff. And we, so, and, and, and everyone's Catholic. You know, at this time, there was no other religion. You know, basically, everyone's Catholic, and the Pope is the the great guy in the Vatican, and he's ruling all this stuff. So, so everyone's Catholic. And then Henry VIII decides that he wants to get divorced. Mm. So, obviously, divorce is illegal in Catholicism. So the Pope won't grant his divorce. So he decides, well, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna I'm gonna invent my own religion. Then you know, mm. I'm gonna I don't I'm not gonna be Catholic anymore. And he invents the Church of England, which was Protestantism. And it comes along, it's a side of Protestantism that's along with uh, Martin Luther King. Yeah. You know, originally when he started the printing press. And Protestant is basically Protestant. You know, I am protesting the Catholic faith. You know, and that's where Protestants came from. So then, of course, everyone in Great Britain becomes Protestant. You know, because, okay, well, the king, I'm going to be, I got to be like him. And um, Because it was met with death if you were a Catholic, correct? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, a lot of uh, persecution, you know, it just came down. Because that's what it was. You know, if you're against, if you're against the norm, what are we going to do? And it was vice versa, too. They would send people in from Spain and France over to England and Wales and kill you for going against Catholicism. Yeah, Yeah. or going against anything. Yeah. You know, it it wasn't just the way it was. But so everyone becomes Protestant at that time. And Southern Ireland you know, was just so Catholic, you know, and even just to this day and age, you yeah. know, we're still so Catholic and with the Shamrock and, and St. Patrick, all this stuff. So, so they're saying, well, you know, we're the fair play. You can be Protestant, but we want to be, you know, we want to be Catholic still. We're still allegiance to the Pope. So they broke away, like Southern Ireland decided, well, we're going to be our own entity. And Northern Ireland decided well, we we going to stay with it. So it was actually Southern, and this is where it sort of gets into the yeah. area of okay. Well, this is my story yeah. versus someone else's story. Because again, the way propaganda is, and the way like when certain songs are sung about it, that become propaganda across the world, and that's automatically what happened. Yeah, because a certain pop star with big sunglasses likes to <laughs> <laughs> sing it that way. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, which which changes history, yeah, you know? And um, so Southern Ireland breaks away and Northern Ireland stays, you know? So Southern Ireland did break away. So it wasn't that the British just came over and invaded, killed all the cattle and stole the potatoes. Oh, okay. You know? Um, yeah. So Northern Ireland sticks, stays away. We're going to be Protestant. 
and then that basically is what where it all stems from. Really? And we get through then to 1690, and uh, Londonderry is a city in Northern Ireland, and it's a walled city. So all the Protestants, and I'm sort of jumping around in history here, but it's like you know, an overview. So all the Protestants are in Londonderry, and uh, they are under siege for years on end. You know, the last sort of bastion of, of Protestants, and uh, they're pretty much done for, you know. Because uh, when you're sieged in a walled city, you know, there's no food coming in, and there's all uh, pestilence and, and famine and, uh, and, and uh, plague and stuff. So then King William of Orange, who was King William of Holland, he comes to Northern Ireland, and I don't know why he decided, yeah. but he was, okay, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to save them, and and he then liberated Londonderry on the, on the 12th of July. So on the 11th of July, they had all these bonfires to sort of show, well, we're going to come and get you tomorrow, and then on the 12th of July, then they liberated Londonderry, and that was, that's basically our Independence Day, which even to this day is one of the most violent times oh, wow. in Northern Ireland because it, it promotes, you know, Protestant versus Catholic. Oh, uh, yeah. So a lot of, uh, in my day, again, I can't speak to what it's like now, but in my day, you would get the two weeks off in July um, so that, because there was so much violence. Oh, wow. You know, and, and all the riots, like, just all the riots and marching season would just be complete devastation and uh, so many, so much, so many bombing, so much destruction and, and as a young fella, you know, we used to go Away on holiday. Then uh, there's a place called the Giant's Causeway back home, and it's 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 a volcano, you know. But in myth, a giant lived there. And yeah. he, he made these. So a lovely place, but it's this it's this wonderful you know historical landmark. So that's not going to get blown up. So you go there <laughs> to go camping, yeah. and then you're sort of removed from it all. And then two weeks later, you get to drive back to Belfast, and the place is on fire. Two weeks, it just clears up. Yeah. After that, really? Well, yeah. Well, you get yeah. back and the whole place is on the place. Yeah. On, you Everything's burnt down. Cars <laughs> and you got to do the slalom to get home. Oh, wow. And then everyone goes back to work. And then, but if you, if a, if a business is open, it gets firebombed. You know, it's just this. Wow. It's just, and it was always that time. And it was really a destructive, terrible, terrible uh, time of year, you know? So, yeah, so I, I, I'm sort of jumping around there, but that's basically where, like, there's a lot more that comes into it yeah. uh, as far as the persecution. And so, stuff. so you're, you're pro, you grew up Protestant. Yep. And uh, so immediately, how young were you when you first found out, you know, about, you know, this rivalry, this, this civil war, if you will? Oh, I have no idea. Like, from my earliest memory, is it? Yeah. You know, it's just all day, every day. You know, you're at school and the windows are shaking from bombs going off and you're just sitting doing your homework. Wow. Um, you get home, you watch the news and it's just someone got killed, someone got killed, someone got killed. You know, it was just that whole, my whole life. I, I had no understanding, no idea. And like checkpoints, like army checkpoints getting searched. And it, it just, that's all I know. Yeah. Like, I, I'm pretty much. Keep going, you're good. Uh, I'm pretty much removed from it because I don't, I didn't have really any connection to it yeah. um, at the time. It's It's very like. Well, disconnected dissociation. You know, yeah. it's just an existence, and it was an existence you kind of were born into. I mean, you, you were born in '77. That's like that's the thick of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was uh, IRA, right? The Irish Republican Army. Yeah, the IRA. Army. Yeah, the IRA. The and UDF. they were fighting. Who were they protecting? You and your family, or well, it? no. The the IRA was um, they wanted United Ireland. 
Uh-huh. You know, so they were a lot of, uh, they were like on like the antagonists. So they'd mm-hmm. be out like blowing up pubs and, and shootings and stuff. And then the UVF, the LVF, which was the loyalist side, which was loyal to the crown, loyal to the king. To England. Yeah, loyal yeah. to, like wanted to stay as Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. you know, part of Britain. And then, then they would have to retaliate because nobody would testify against each other. So, in court. Yeah. So, so nobody was ever getting done, even though you knew, like the small community, you know, it was that guy that shot that guy. Oh, but wow. you're not going to go and say, <laughs> so then for him to be punished, you know, it's very like, you know, like they look out to themselves and, and for Northern Ireland being such a violent country and, and so much death, it was one of the least crime filled countries <laughs> because you couldn't, you know, you wouldn't go out and steal anything or, or beat somebody up or because you would get punished, you know, so you would get kneecapped or you'd get a punishment beating, which is better than the police giving you a slap on the fist, on the hands, you know, you're not going to go and it what was kneecapping common oh yeah, yeah. kneecapping was all the time you know and they would and if it, uh, you don't know what kneecapping is kneecapping is getting shot in the back of your knees um or there was different ways they would do it like bricks drop bricks on you and stuff like that um and one of the ones like for if you were a tout do you know what tout no, is? No. so if you if you were squealed if you squealed you know uh, we're an informer type thing you would get um like a nail a six inch nail through your lip through your tongue and through your bottom lip and knocked and bang to the table. Oh, that's nice. You know? Wow. Uh, or they would do the one you would, like, eat. You'd have to bite, bite the, curb. the curb and then kick you in the back of the head. That was, oh. So those were the ones you would get done for touting. Um, and this was done in a context of a civil war to keep to, their people submissive to them? or To an aspect. it was Those were, like, punishments, you know, to keep the... It's just like the mafia type thing, you know, we're going to look after, you pay your protection right. money and we're going to look at, again, this is not, this is just me speaking, so I don't want, it, I. But they're really breaking down the human being and they're controlling. No, yeah, of course, the yeah, there's being. the fear, yeah. there's the fear, but again, you know, you can still, there's still a, a wonderful life aspect, you can still go shopping, you can still go and have friends, whatever, in your own community, you can't cross, mm-hmm. and so there was a. Like a peace line, there was a, like a big, like a wall, like a DMZ type thing. Yeah, yeah, down down the center of Belfast that would disconnect the Falls Road and the Shankill Road, which was the two main like Protestant Catholics. So there's many areas of Belfast that I just could never go to, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and you'd always know because they have the it, everything's painted, you know, either green, white, and gold to show they're Republican, or red, white, and blue to be loyal, like loyalists for Britain. So you'd always sort of know where you were. So you could communicate in a way that uh, would keep you safe. Yeah. But that's where the difficulty comes with the uh, genes, the genetic pool, because you can tell if someone's Catholic or Protestant. Really? And there was always the way, there was always three questions that you would ask or get asked to find out if you were Catholic or Protestant. So you could sort of either work out, is this a girl that I can you know, go out with? Or is this someone I can be friends with? Or why is this person talking to me? And and in my side of things, like there was a lot of aspects that I had to be very careful, like very hyper vigilant, because of the situation that I was in. And the situation I was in was my my family was uh, in a police family, so we were being targeted. Uh, well, again, I was being targeted, or the, the family, whatever, um, from both sides. How, how old are you at this point? Well, since I was born. Oh, okay. Well, wow. you know. Uh, and I, ju- I just want to talk about myself. I don't want to go into all that because, again, it's, they're not here to defend Definitely. them. Or, so I, I, that's, I can only tell my own story. Definitely. 
when you were a boy, did you laugh? Did you get to play baseball or soccer or sports with your friends at parks? Or yeah. was were you continually no, we, in a no, war zone? No, we, it was continuous. It's not like a... It's the same as like when we look at... When you get shown the news of Iraq or Afghanistan, yeah. you're only seeing like the bombed out areas. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing people going to the shop, yeah. you know, that are removed from the fighting areas. So yes, there were areas that were like that. And that's what people just perceive. But we still had a life. You know, I still had a great time. I got to play. I got to go to the cinema. I got to do all this stuff. Uh, but I segregated. Yeah. You know, I couldn't go. And there was times that, of course, once I got older and without being crass, but when the big, when the little head started telling the big head what to do, <laughs> yeah. there were times that I was You'd hop in over the fence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what were the three questions? That oh, you- the three questions, um, it's, well, what's your name? Obviously, like, they look at me, and I'm Protestant through and through. There's no way that I can be Catholic. And it's still, like, uh, Catholics, again, this is just mythology, but it does fit into some way. But Catholics' eyes are closer together. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that's how you know E.T. is a Protestant, because his eyes are on the other side <laughs> of his head. Um, they say, like, they they kick with the other foot, or they dig with the other foot. And that was a way to, again, these are just silly things that... But, yeah. They would say, like, back in the days when everyone was a peat, like, digging the peat bogs, mm-hmm. like, you would give someone a shovel, and then if they dug with their left foot, then you would know they were Catholic. And then it got to, okay, well, if you kick a football at them and they kick control with the left, then they're most likely Catholic. But again, that's... Just stereotyping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you can, like, it, in the facial structure and the way people hold themselves, just like with anything, you can, it's just, it's it's culture, you can tell. So they'd ask you your name? Yeah, and then the name, else? so the name, obviously, if you tell your name... If your name is Sean O'Malley, then you're Catholic, pretty much. And with me, with Brian Higgins, it could be either, you know. So again, okay, well, I don't, I still don't know, you know. Uh, so what's your name? And then where do you live? You know, and then you can tell, okay, well, I live in this town. And then you can know, okay, well, that's Catholic. And where I ended up living, it was a place called Hollywood, which was, it's Hollywood with one L. Mm. And it was where all the monks lived back in the days. And it was a forest, so it was the Hollywood. And then all the Vikings came over and killed the monks, and mm. that's where Hollywood came from. But we sort of moved there because it was more of a, a safe haven. You know, where we used to live right up in Belfast, uh, beside police headquarters, it was, it was a lot more dangerous. And uh, we moved to Hollywood because it was surrounded by army barracks. And so we were aware, okay, well, it's Sergeant Johnson that lives beside us. And so, we, so I could hang about with his children, you know. Whereas when we were in Belfast, we had no idea. You know, if somebody moved in beside us, we had no idea, like, why did they move? Were they there to whatever? Mm-hmm. So it was a lot more difficult. So, so again, what's your name? Where do you live? And what school do you go to? Mm. You know, because the school is very segregated. Um, and then that's basically you find out out of those three questions. One of those questions would basically tell you straight away. But if you if you couldn't make it on one question, you could get it in the three, and you would know exactly who who they were. And then you could form your decisions of, does the racial profiling or eugenics, does that come from Germany and Ireland being enwrapped in World War One and World War Two? Because um, that's a very stern way to live. Well, Ireland, like the Republic of Ireland, Southern Ireland, was uh, neutral in the war. So they didn't fight in World War One and World War Two because it was seen as a British right. thing. So they did actually, Southern Ireland did, side with the Nazis in World War II. A lot of people don't know that. And um, 
like they would go back and forth, like the the leaders would go back and forth in the U-boats mm-hmm. to come to Ireland and sort of infiltrate because they thought, okay, well, we've automatically got this homegrown army that's going to be against Britain. So what a lot of Americans don't know either is that like two-thirds of the American Air Force was based in Northern Ireland on D-Day. And if D-Day had failed, they were just going to bomb the crap out of Southern Ireland because they knew if we fail on D-Day, you know, Southern Ireland is going to, Germany's just going to hit Southern Ireland and then they're just going to have the pincer movement, you know, mm-hmm. and crush Britain. So if D-Day had failed, they were just going to destroy the place. Oh, wow. And there were a lot of relics that Adolf Hitler was interested in finding or obtaining in not just Southern Ireland, but Ireland as a whole. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was all, but yeah. the Druids and all, I'm going to become, it's just like Raiders of the Lost Ark, I'm going to find this mystical mm-hmm. thing and, and be a Superman. <laughs> It's a bit silly to think. <laughs> so, so Hitler wanted to kiss the Blarney Stone? Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. <laughs> well he did. That was one good thing that Hitler didn't need was, was public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, that's one thing. I joke. Uh, like two German guys. And go, oh, that, that Hitler guy, he's got some pretty bad ideas. But he sure is charismatic. <laughs> Let's do what he says. <laughs> so, so yeah. So actually, And then like the head of the IRA got... The, the Nazis killed him. He was off in Germany on the U-boat, and on the way back, they poisoned him and just dumped him out. Oh, wow. And nobody knows why. Um, the, the rumor is that Hitler realized, well, they're just a bunch of terrorists. They're not really this army, <laughs> you know, and yeah. we'll have to deal with them at some point. And again, with Hitler and the and the Third Reich being so, oh, well, we don't, we don't even need this army. We can just go and invade them, and we'll take them over because they're just a bunch of potato farmers. So how often would you sneak over the border? Oh, I wouldn't sneak over the border. Oh, you wouldn't? No. Okay. I mean, like, when I was sneaking over, I would sneak over to the other side, like, yeah. or, like, mainly, I wouldn't sneak over, but I, if I met somebody in the pub, whatever, and they lived on that other side, you know, I'd certainly go yeah. until the deed was done and then realize where it was. But you would never, ever cross no, the line. I, I would go very rarely. I think maybe I went down south maybe twice growing up. So it was just, it really was just this area, like no man's land type thing mm-hmm. and just especially of who i was and stuff it was just a lot more so a, lo- a lot of other people you know their stories aren't aligned with mine because i was in this sort of strange spot so that was you know i i just didn't know i didn't have any like i got i got my share of beatings you know um pretty bad and stuff and like i was in situations seeing people killed and seeing people like all this violence around me but like saying telling that to you now it's a memory. I know it happened, but I have no connection to it, no emotional feeling to it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's pretty much, I, I just don't even know. That's that's the interesting thing of post-traumatic stress, you know, you because you're living it, and I was living it my whole life, so there's no connection before it that I can get back to. Like, all I have is today, this moment, and I can tell you many stories, but they don't affect me. Yeah. anymore um when you were a teenager and you're developing and getting testosterone and hanging out with other male teenagers were you angry did you have a deep-seated resentment not towards no. your neighbors but well of course yeah no. you're like i tell you truthfully like in those days i truly hated catholics mm-hmm. like, so you got caught up in it yeah you, like because you have to because you're like your friends your family have been killed you don't have a choice days. So it's not like I tried to say the analogy of like the the Civil War, the American Civil War. Like perhaps your great 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 grandfather killed your great great grandfather, but you never met them. Mm-hmm. And it was like a couple of hundred years ago. Like somebody's uncle 
killed my friend yesterday. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, or that thing, you know, and and so it's so clear and present. So the whole country is pretty much destroyed even to this day because every single person knows someone that was killed or was involved in some way. And uh it's it's right there, you know. And there's a lot of things that are happening now because they realize they've got a lot of, you know, different programs to try and help people. But because it was such a military, like, macho type thing, nobody goes. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's like, I'm not going to cry. I'm the tough guy. I'm not going to this. So it, it's sad for me when when I was first trying to find my, like, my, my pathway to, to recovery. And I knew these programs existed back home, but I had no access to them. And I was so angry that all my friends, you know, wouldn't go. And I said, if I was there, I would... I'm desperate for this and I would embrace the whole thing, but it wasn't available for me in America. So it was a, so I had to invent my own, but did the anger that you witnessed as a boy that encapsulated you, did that lead you to alcoholism and other addictions and just a great depression that? Yeah. Um, and that's another thing I can't, say whether or not those led to it or whether my culture because again like drinking is associated with being you know celtic you know and that's the the lifestyle and i've sort of struggled with that you know would i if i'd been born in america obviously if i was born in america i wouldn't have had these other things i may have had other uh, issues to deal with sure and you know i i I agree with some forms of recovery aspects and i disagree with a lot of others whenever when they say well it didn't matter what you were where you were you were destined to become an alcoholic. You know, when you were born, you were an alcoholic. Whatever you did, you were going to be an alcoholic. And I don't agree with that, you know, because, of course, like, you can kidnap somebody and stick them in a dark room and just feed them with heroin, and you are creating them to be physically addicted. Yeah. If you had never kidnapped them, done that, they would never have been an addict. But I feel like in in recovery, there's that, like, the the miscommunication of you were always going to be this, and I don't agree with that. So, So I can't say, did my... Did the issues uh, make me that? But they certainly contributed mm-hmm. because there was so much, like so much drinking, so many, so much drugs back home, and the whole country was wasted. Because looking back and uh, with hindsight, I know. Okay, well, at the time I was, yeah, I'm going to a rave, yeah, take all these, ease, whatever, and just go crazy because I want it because it's fun. Yeah, but it's escapism. You know, the whole country was like, fuck this. We're seeing all this through the week, so let's get totally wasted and and like the best raves back home were in the prisons like on Saturday nights really <laughs> and because um, again like all the drugs because like terrorists need money you know to survive so then they get into the drug world and um, it, so uh, it was a good time but you know obviously it can't last forever but and then but as you say like the hatred like I did I had so much resentment and so much hate that I was raised with my family never once raised me that way. Like mm. there was, no, it was the exterior. It was my friends, my the the community that I was seeing that was around that 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 built that hate within me, and it was like pure hatred. Like I can connect to that. I can connect to that emotion, that hate. You know, back to when I was saying I can't connect to the situations, but I can connect. I can remember that hate really? right now in the feeling, and I don't have it anymore. I'm very. It's hard to let go or to retrain yourself. Yeah. That resentment, yeah. Well, it's been like where my resentment is now. It's more for people who don't appreciate life and don't appreciate what they have because they don't ha- they haven't had a struggle, you know. And but again, that's me. You know, my perceptions of somebody. Like I, if I see somebody skipping down the road with a great job, hey, everything's great for me. 
I have no idea what's going on behind them. They're they're smiling and getting on with their day. But there is still a level of resentment in me because there is a struggle that I face still in America today that I that I, I find hard to get over and my perceptions of resentment against others when it's not I just got to smile and one foot in front of the other and it'll happen. So So what led to you coming to America? Can you can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, it was um well, I saw that Eddie Murphy film coming to America. I thought <laughs> I'm going to be just like him. I'm ahead to Queens. <laughs> yeah. um, no, it was when the peace process started and the ceasefire started. Uh, in 97? Or? Yeah. 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 And on Good Friday, when we all went and voted, and we had to go and vote yes or no. Do you want peace, yes or no? And me and my stupid ways of being a young uh, teenager, I, I voted no. Huh. Because I knew that my vote wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily stop the peace. But I didn't agree with the terms. So, and the terms were that the the IRA guys or the UVF, whatever, would all get to be politicians. You know, they put down their guns; they get to be politicians, ministers, of parliament. And I didn't agree with that. You know, because in the end, if you're you're if you kill someone, you're a murderer. It doesn't matter if you're political or whatever; you still killed someone. So you, that's that. You know, you go yeah. to jail. You can't claim, well, I was doing it because blah blah blah. So I didn't agree with that, and it was more just me being a, an angry little fella and standing with the boys. And so when the peace process started and the ceasefire started, then Bill Clinton came over and played his saxophone and turned the Christmas lights on, and then there was peace. Wow. That's exactly how it happened. Really? <laughs> um, <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> and and uh, then a special visa was invented to give people who are directly affected by the troubles the opportunity to come to America. For, for for three years we were supposed to come over for three years and you work with other cultures like the Asian populations or Hispanic and and you go in like different cultural centers so you can sort of learn because it, it was a bad situation it was a bad thing they it was an American run program and they just thought again like we're out in the streets just shooting each other and right. on site so whereas we were having jobs and we were okay so um, no America has a big um, la- Americans have a lack of understanding of what war is and civil yep. war because we haven't had it here mm-hmm. for four or five generations. Yep. Yeah. And so, as where I was a little kid wanting to play war and play Indian and cowboy, the rest of the world was actually experiencing and living it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And uh, so, over the three years, you're supposed to go and do all this stuff, cultural things, and then by process of that, you realize, well, you know, I don't want to kill people anymore. Um, and then you go home. And you decide, well, I still hate Catholics, but I just don't want to kill them anymore. Or I still hate Protestants, I don't want to kill them anymore. I think I'll be a bank manager, you know, and I'll get a good job and I'll be have a good a good life. And then like little Billy and little Sean that are growing up, you know, they get to see the guys that are still killing each other and say, oh, they're really cool. I'm going to get a gun and I'm going to be like them. That's cool. Oh, but there's Brian. He's a bank manager. And he's got a car and he's got a girlfriend. I'm going to be like him. And then over the course of time, that was their, that was their, their idea of how this thing would work. But it obviously didn't work because anybody that comes to America and they realize, yeah, hey, America's pretty cool. I can do all this stuff. And after three years, you go home and you go, this is shit. Hmm. And then you just go away again. You can either come back to America illegal or you go to Canada or Australia in the Commonwealth. Yeah. But you certainly don't decide to go home and try and change <laughs> change the ways. Because it's too exhausting. Yeah, it's just, yeah. why should I? Like, there's, once you're shown, okay. Because, again, you don't have any comparison to life. You've only got this this little small thing. And then you 
then it's, oh, the world's open and I can have this world. Why should I go back and try and change yeah. when nobody wants to change? You know, Was and, it weird coming to a country where there's Jews and Christians and black people and Indians? Uh, and To an extent, not, not really. Like I'd never, and this may sound funny, but I'd never like seen a black person yeah. before I came to America because it's all just white Catholic Protestant. Yeah. You know, nobody comes to Northern Ireland and when he decides, well, I'm going to go and emigrate to Northern Ireland, you know? So there was no change. And so as far as that aspect, like I wasn't like a pointing at people. Oh, wow, there's a, there's a, there's whatever. Right. You know, it was just, okay, well, now there's this. But it's got to be a big mind-changing paradigm when you go from this segregated, isolated country to a melting plot, pot that has a person from every part of the world. Like, that seems like a big expansion of thoughts and ideas that would enter your head. Oh, uh, maybe now, that where I am today. But at the time, like, we're right in the middle of my post-traumatic stress about yeah. that issue. So there was other things going on for me than, than like, realizing where I was. Because I had no clue. Mm. I had no, like, I just, once I came to America, I, for the first six months, it was wonderful. You know, I was like, yeah, this is great. Now I can I can go to wherever I want. I can talk to wherever I want. I can go to this pub. I can go to that restaurant. Where were I you can, living? In Boston. In Boston, okay. Yeah, it was like Cambridge, Brookline areas. But I could go to whatever pub I want. I could. I didn't have to worry about why is that car parked there? Why is this girl talking to me? Why is this guy talking to me? You know, I that, it just didn't bother me. But then after six months, then things started going wrong, you know, because like 90% of my being was hypervigilance you know it was just protecting me you know without understanding because that's just how i was raised i had no comparison and for me i was very much the i wanted to protect everyone i didn't care about myself like i could die tomorrow and who cares because i don't have any connection to anybody because they could die tomorrow and but for me for some reason it was i want to protect everyone at the expense of myself so when we were out like everyone else can get wasted wherever but I have to be constant on oh, why did he come in, da, da, da. but still getting wasted. But my mind is like hypervigilance. So when something goes wrong, then I can, okay, let's go. You'll be the Pied Piper or whatever. Yeah. Or like whatever, jump in front of the bullets or whatever. Take um, control. Yeah. yeah. And so after the six months, the first six months in, in, in Boston, then my mind started thinking, well, hold on. I still need to function in some way. I still need to create. I need, I need to be. So that's when my flashback started. And I was totally convinced that they were true. Like I was convinced the IRA had followed me to America and, uh, and that they were planting bombs under my bed. And like it was full on like, like if you know the holodeck in Star Trek. Yeah. That was it. Really? To me, I was fully immersed in this world. You, you were back home feeling it? Well, no, no, I was in Boston. Okay. But these situations were happening around me the essence of it was happening yeah, again. and yeah. i could i could see these people and i could and it was life to me i i was so terrified and of course nobody would understand what i was talking about so my plan was okay well i i'm just gonna drink more you know and that's when my alcoholism really started flying through the roof because i just needed to be unconscious all the time mm -hmm. and of course the flashbacks are still happening to me and intensifying yeah, yeah. and but i'm just not aware of them or then i'd be so drunk that people couldn't wake me up or I'd be found out in the street in my, in my boxer shorts, you know? And, um, it was, it was pretty bad. And that's, 
sort of when things started really falling apart for me and, and like trying to find help. Once I realized that things were wrong and I had to find help, trying to find help was awful. You know, because like people, I would go to therapists, whatever, and they would say, okay, you got post traumatic stress, but we don't know how to treat your post traumatic stress. I know how to treat someone who's been in a car crash, maybe there's got, so let's treat you. And that's not going to happen. Because again, back in these days, it was like for military, for conflict based PTSD, it was still denial. You know, like big Marine, you come back from Iraq, what are you crying for? You're a big Marine. Suck it up. Okay, then they kill themselves. You know, like more more veterans have killed themselves than ever have been killed in conflict. Yeah, because yeah. they don't embrace. There's no help for them. Nowadays, it's changing to an, to a bit, but it's still like that stigma that's attached. So a lot of people don't reach out, you know, and embrace the help. So you know, I was trying to find help, couldn't find any, and then in and out of psych wards and stuff, and um, a couple of rehabs, and just no help, and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't function. In, in any way and then we can fast forward to to Salt Lake again lots of other stuff happened and you could, there's other there's, I don't want to drone on here yeah. uh, but so we, when was this in Salt Lake when did you come to Salt Lake uh, six years ago okay so I was an architect back home I do a lot of conceptual architecture and, and uh, commercial interiors and like Google offices and things like that so I was doing quite well in that because again I was always functional and uh, I got brought to Salt Lake to bring conceptual design to, to Utah but then it sort of it it raised a lot more trouble for me because then of course we've got the predominant religion here, which was very you know headbutting against me mm-hmm. and in the culture and stuff. So it raised my you know the the I had conflicts conflict confusion, you know, and my mind was like okay, well these these guys are against you. Like trying to work here was awful for me, and and uh, so it was like okay, these guys are attacking you. And um, you know who else used to attack you? The IRA. And they were trying to kill you. So therefore, these guys must be trying to kill you as well. And it's amazing to me to look back and see that, well, I allowed that thought to enter my mind and take control. It's a very real thought. I I felt kind of that way, too, when I first came here, being a Jewish kid, a liberal kid. Yeah. Because I felt, oh, well, I can't date the women here. Like, there's 60% of the people that won't hire me. They won't uh, be friendly with me. Like, it's hot it's a desert it's nowhere i really want to be it's a very different world mm-hmm. and it's their rules or you get the hell out of here yep Definitely. yep so that's sort of and by this time like i I skipped over but i got married and uh so therefore i didn't have to go home mm. that was how i got away from the visa like oh, okay if it was clear and present when my visa was going to expire and i had to go home i was going to kill myself because i knew if i went home i was probably going to get killed so I'm not going to allow them to kill. I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. Which was very hard to communicate to people because I was functioning and I was happy yeah. to an extent. But I was saying, well, in six months, I'm going to kill myself. And that's that. That's my, I'm going to be, I'm only, I've got six months left to live. It's basically like I've been given like a cancer diagnosis, wow. you know, and, and people couldn't understand that because I wasn't doom and gloom, Yeah. you know. But you, you wanted that control over your life. I mean, because you, you'd be a dead man if you went back. Yeah. 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 And um, so I... You know, obviously, I, I got I got married. I didn't get married for the green card. We we just accelerated because we realized, well, we can pretend that a long distance relationship would work, but the clear and present danger is it certainly wouldn't if one of them's dead. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> so we accelerated that relationship to get to get married so that we I could stay, and then uh, and then that was that. So I didn't have to go home, uh, but I did. I I wrote 
these letters. I wrote letters to every senator and every congressman. In Utah? No, in in America. Like to say, look, here's the situation. I'm going to kill myself. And this is like, help me out. Give me, I need refugee status. And the only one that wrote back to me was Ted Kennedy. Really? Yeah. And and I had this great communication with Ted Kennedy. Boston senator, yeah? Yeah. And it was, again, like I realized it was just because he was playing the Irish card. Yeah. But it was still cool to have that, you know, the the biggest one, you know, so I can, I've got like one degree of separation from JFK. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, the Irish card works, yeah. I guess. <laughs> and so what did he write to you? Well, just, you know, it, it was more like, I can't do anything, but I, I hear you and I can talk to you and I can, you know, I'll keep my eye open and stuff. And, and uh, I would, you know, chat to him here and there. And I, I kept all my correspondence. I kept the letter and it was cool to have that. So you were... From a time point, you were, it was 99, 2000 when you were looking back at having to go to Ireland? Um, well, what year is it now? Like, uh, so tw- two, no, 2000. Yeah. 2006. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, or 2009. But you were afraid in 2006 of going to Ireland thinking that you were going to be killed. Yeah. But that's not a, that wasn't a proper thought back then? Or is that? No, no, it's just, it's a, it's. It's still clear and present. There's still there's still troubles going on now. We just don't hear about it because we don't fly build planes in the buildings. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, once that happened, then who cared about the IRA? Yeah. You know, but up until that, the IRA was the main, like worldwide, terrorist threat. You know. But then, nine eleven happens, and that's that. So in the end, like nine eleven did a good thing because then the IRA realized, well, we can't do that. So let's look at other directions. So it's still not a good place to no. live. Yeah. No, and for me. Like I've been home twice, and when I've gone home, it's just it's it's put me straight back into the worst levels of post-traumatic stress because I've got no new memories. All I have is that road that I saw, whoever get killed or whatever. Or hmm. whereas my friends, you know, they've gone to the arts festival or they've gone to the the farmers market. So yes, they've got the bad memories, but they've also got the new memories. But for me, I've got I don't, so I don't go home, and that's the clear and present, you know. Like, nobody to this day and age is physically looking for Brian Higgins. Right. You know? But at the time, with the post-traumatic stress, with everything there, like, that was, you know, right at that moment. So, so what helped you? Well, I, one of my main flashbacks, we'll get to this, was, uh, like, I got ambushed a few times and pulled out of the car, and I had a, a gun to my head, and the gun, and I was like, are you Catholic or Protestant? Give the wrong answer, you get killed. And that was my main flashback that I just could not get over. Like I'd made, I'd made sort of progress with everything else to try and be functional, but that one there was the one that I could not get over. And I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I could still feel the muzzle, you know, clear and present right on my forehead. And I couldn't get that. I just couldn't do it. So again, that's and then that elevated again once I came to Utah, and I had the whole conflict confusion. And again, my decision was, well, I'm going to drink more, you know, go unconscious, make this go away. But of course, it doesn't go away. But now I'm just too drunk, and my, my ex-wife can't wake me up. And I'm so now she's experiencing because I'm bouncing all over the bed, and she can't wake me up. So, so then I end up sleeping in the basement, and I'm just totally isolated, and I'm just so angry, you know, shaking my fist at the sky. Everyone else's fault. It's terrible, and now I'm. It's you know we're moving towards suicide again. Totally unfunctional. Then uh, we get divorced over it, and uh, I end up in the, at the at the shelter. I was homeless. And still, like I, I went into uni, you went into rehab, and I got out, and I, uh, I, I was just at the end. It was all right. I'm. This is it. I'm just gonna live out my days, getting wasted, and then die. 
you know, I don't, I can't reintegrate. I've reintegrated too many times, and I just, I'm just done with it. And you were okay with that, yeah, idea. Yeah, and I was, I was on a lot of antidepressants and a lot of pills from um, the psychiatrist. Yeah, from the the rehab, and which were adding to my dementia and psychosis. And I just, but I was sort of okay with that as well because I was just so like just bland, you know, and I couldn't communicate. I couldn't, I couldn't get out of it, and. I, I ended up, I, w- I had to go to this children's birthday party and I didn't want to go and I was just so angry and, and pissed off and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but I go anyway and, and I'm in the corner and just exuding hate. You know, no one's coming near me and I'm just like, that's all your fault. Why is, why is no one helping me? And I'm so angry. And uh, these two little five-year-old boys came up to me with bananas and they shot me with the bananas. And a lot of people then feel whether well, that tricky. Did you go? Did you freak out? And my, the other thing was that no, it was, it was the opposite. It was the light bulb moment for me. And when I say the light bulb moment, you know, we can imagine the little light bulb that appears above our heads. And I think you know when when um, Da Vinci or Socrates had an idea, was it a candle that appeared above their heads, <laughs> <laughs> or like when the caveman invents the wheel, was it like two bits of flint? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And the opposite happened was I, I realized that, like if those if those kids are truly believing in this moment that those bananas are guns, there is no reason why I cannot believe that guns are bananas, which seems pretty ridiculous. But <laughs> and I thought well, that's a good idea. So I, I had some crayons from the children's party and I had a like an old pay slip, and I drew a, two little stick men, mm-hmm. like one on the ground and another guy holding a banana to my head, and then I after I went. Well, back to the shelter, whatever. I I sculpted it and I I painted it and I animated it and I did all these different versions, but always with the banana. And then over the course of time, my 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 dream, my flashback changed, and it was a banana in in the dream. But in the waking moments, like I'm fully aware it's a gun. Like I'm aware, but that's when I can control it and I can move away. But it's when your sleep and your subconscious starts to sabotage you. Uh, that's when you can't control it. Uh, and there's a banana now, so I'm not a, I'm not scared anymore. And there's aspects that I can interact with the scene and I can take the banana off the guy and mm-hmm. eat it, you know? And over the time, I was able to see there was two ridiculous aspects to that image. One, he's trying to kill me with a banana. You know, he might as well throw the skin on the ground and hope that I slip on it and bang my head. Mm-hmm. But two, he's trying to kill me for no reason. He's just trying to kill an entity. He's not trying to kill Brian Higgins. And that, I had always had that. It was always, oh, you're trying to kill Brian Higgins. You know, but they're not. They're trying to kill a Protestant. You know, they're trying to kill uh, a, a Jewish guy. You know, they're trying to kill a Muslim. You know, it's not trying to kill Johnny. Yeah. You know, it's it's this. You are this entity that I've been raised to hate, and I am the entity that you've been raised to hate. So there's no connection there. So how can I even be angry with this guy wanting to kill me? You know, and I. And that was the origin of what what my nonprofit is, which is create real change. And I I looked at like semiotics, and semiotics is meaning making, and it's how we use perceptions to change something into something else, which is what I did with the banana and the gun. And then that was just the, and I say like that was that was it'll be four years ago in November when that happened, and it doesn't really sound too good saying oh it was four years ago that I was homeless, but it was really six months ago that I was homeless at that time. It took me six months to turn it around and, and then like become this incredible journey that I'm on. And like in 15 years, 
I, it's it's going to have even less. Oh, and 15 years ago, I was homeless. Yeah. You know, yeah. but, and so that's my only downside is I wish that it was like, oh, in six months, because it can show, you know, the the, the, pro, the progress. Yeah. You can turn it around. And, and so this banana then, yep. the visualization of the banana, the feeling of the banana gives you a reduction in stress or doesn't scare you as much as that idea or visualization in your dream of that gun right yeah. that that's where you're going with it yeah it's it's purely subconscious and was that your brain trying to protect brian higgins and give him life i have no idea it's like everything happens for a reason yeah and everything had to get to that point for those kids to try and shoot me with the bananas and that was just like you said a major yeah, it was like straight away and uh like relief and um, oh my god i might be able to save myself or no it all just came it was like like, I didn't have the, the thought didn't form in my head, oh, I'm going to do this, and then it's yeah. going to change all this. It was a progression, you know? And um, so, again, like, my, my whole teachings now, because I, I teach up at the, at the VA with, like, veterans, a lot uh -huh. of Vietnam guys, uh, treatment centers for addiction, depression. It, it, it covers every type of mental health now, and it covers just norm. I'm trying to branch out into, because everyone can help, and it, it's a new communication concept you know, to get your ideas across to somebody. How does it work, like, briefly, or without you giving it all away to... Uh, yeah, it's basically, well, I help people find their banana. Mm. Uh, you know, like, my my troubles were so massive to me. I believed that my answer had to be massive as well. But in the end, my answer was a banana. Yeah. And I never thought in my wildest dreams that a banana would save my life. And, of course, the banana was just one element of it, but it was the the... Is cataclysm the right word? Uh, uh, catalyst. Yes, catalyst. That's the word you're okay. looking for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that allowed me to move forward, you know, and keep moving along, but it all came down to that banana. Like the simplest form, the simplest form was the answer. So I basically help people find their bananas. And it, it comes down to, so the way the, the, the nonprofit, which is Create Real Change, has evolved, initially it was just, okay, well, I'm just going to go out and tell my story and tell this banana thing. And now I've got like it's a it's a four structure uh, workshop, so it's four workshops, and it just helps you communicate your feelings, you know, because addicts can talk to you till they're blue in the face about their pain that they're suffering, and you're never going to feel that unless you've got personal experience with addiction. But even then, it's going to be your experience. It's not going to be you're not going to be able to feel what the other guy feels like. But if you watch ET, when ET dies, you cry your eyes out. Mm -hmm. because you're emotionally attached to that character and then it's connecting in something that you understand so basically i'm just helping these people communicate in an overarching way it, it comes down to it's all marketing really you know and it's finding a way that i can you know poke you that i can touch you in your answer in your in your voice in your language so that you'll turn around and give me validation and that's marketing. You know, I need you to buy this toothpick. But if I say, do you want to buy a toothpick? Yeah, I don't need a toothpick. But if I make this, if I tell you why you need this toothpick, and I make you feel the piece of food in your mouth that isn't even there, then you know, oh, I'll buy that toothpick for a million dollars. Yeah. You know? Does this and, come through visualization? Yeah, and, it's all visualization. And yeah. it's all, you know, we... Like the whole aspect is to make a film, like a short film in the end. And we're all working on our, our cell phones because mm -hmm. everyone's got a cell phone. Everyone can shoot HD. And we only work, like if we were doing it right here, right now, like I travel, I go to where you need me. And if we were doing it right here, right now in the studio, 
we can only use what's right here right now because oh. we can turn anything that we can turn anything in this studio into anything we want mm. using semiotics using perceptions and that sort of teaches the tools that are available to us here and now we don't have to put stumbling blocks in, inside ourselves oh, i can't do that because i don't have this you know i can't do that because i don't have this or i can't do that because i have this no it's right here right now uh everything can change you can change it in the moment it's just got to be your thought process and um and then so so that's it so then we take what we've done like the f little films or whatever um another one an easy way to explain because i know it's hard to explain to people feel unless you come to the seminars and then you can really understand it you can feel it but one of the vietnam guys that i'm working with and again it was one of my things i never thought that it would be i'd be touching with vietnam guys and i'm sitting there waiting and then these this bunch of like hell's angels walk in and then I'm terrified. I'm like, oh, these guys are going to kill me. But that's against my teachings. It's like, well, that's my perception, you know, going against them. But again, they're all puppy dogs, yeah. you know. And again, like these fellas have held on to their issues for 40-odd years and just struggled through it to communicate. And one of them, it's pain and addiction. He just wanted to communicate pain. Like we're not communicating our stories. We're communicating our emotions and our mm. feelings. And he wanted to communicate pain, what it's like for his addiction. So we made a film about stubbing your toe. Because everybody in the world has stubbed their toe. And it's the worst pain in the world. You know? And I don't know anyone who can stub their toe and then just sit and smile about it. Like, you're going to scream and you're going to shout. You know, there's no way. It doesn't matter if you're Richard Branson or if you're the Queen of England or you're a homeless guy in the street. Everyone's going to have that same reaction. So we make this quick little film of him stubbing his toe. And what are we going to do? You know, you're going to scream and shout about it, but then you're going to put ice on it, bandage it, so you can literally and figuratively take one step forward, you know? And then these films just exist as they are. Like, no communicate, no, what does it mean? It's just, this is what it is. And then we have screenings for the public, and everyone watch that. And everyone who watches the toe stubbing, they will all wince. Mm. You know, they will mm. feel that reaction. Because, like, oh, oh, I remember when that happened to me. And you've got that muscle memory. And then afterwards, everyone comes out and talks. Okay, well, I made the toe-stubbing film. This is what it is. This is addiction to me. You know, you stub your toe, the jerk reaction is, I got to use. You know, there's there's nothing else. But if you take the time and put a bandage on it or add ice to it, then you can get through it. And then everyone is more inclined. Oh, that's amazing. I never even thought of it that way. I can relate. How can I help you? Whereas, oh, I can have a dollar. I'm want to get some drugs yeah. oh go away you're invisible so it's just it's just touching people and and communicating so what got you into actual semiotics did you know about that when you had the banana revelation or um the godfather <laughs> <laughs> i love that move um because when i had the revelation the banana revelation i still didn't know it was just like okay well this, this is happening and then i was actually listening to a podcast it was i think it was was it Mark Maron? It might have been Mark Maron. And it was uh, Michael Showalter mm. from the state yeah. that was on. And he had done he'd done a degree in semiotics. And that's when I first heard the term. You know, I had no idea about it. And then he talked about the Godfather. And the Godfather, whenever, there's, whenever someone's about to get killed in the Godfather, there's blood oranges in the scene. And blood oranges are it's the, the, the fruit of Sicily. So it's connecting the mafia, like subconsciously. But again, you don't have to know that. And it doesn't add or detract. It's just there's some oranges. 
so but you can really delve into it and you can create this whole other world that doesn't really exist and have more meaning so that was when i started and I, then i started really, hey, that that's actually what i'm doing wow and that's then i started studying semiotics and doing a lot and it's incredible to me how many people like even when i did my ted talk people hadn't had no idea what semiotics was so that was fantastic by the way i saw it, it was thank you yeah. the, the one the homeless one yeah came in. yeah and, and when i did that i i didn't plan it i didn't I didn't practice because I wanted to be, I wanted to make that atmosphere, you know, and I wanted to communicate to the audience. And you can tell, like when I walk into that room, those guys are terrified, yeah. you know, uh, because they're in this safe structure of like, we're all upper class and we're doing this. Blah, blah, yeah, and we're and smart so, people being smart today. Yeah. yeah. And then I come stumbling in. With and the blanket and yeah. the hat and yeah. And the only thing, the, what they didn't see was that I had the microphone stuck to my face. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, you can see how they change in that five minutes that I'm communicating with them, you know, and you can just feel that atmosphere even in the video. And then how I communicate and like I had those, the, the fruit underneath the people's chairs and so, well, let's help. And then just to see that change. And when I do meet with people and I try to pitch my ideas, again, no one knows what I'm doing. And I'm still yet to find a way that I can do it. Like, I've got my elevator pitch, but still no one understands. So, like, if I was a yoga instructor, I can tell. I'm a yoga instructor. Oh, I know what that is. What's your hourly rate? Come on 11, come on 11 on Wednesday. But when I say, I'm doing semiotic expressive recovery, they have no idea. I think so, we all do, though, from a subconscious level, because we're all, the majority of human beings are visual animals. Yeah. And we've been taught for thousands of years what images are and different cultures can see the same color but they're going to express it differently or they're going to see a fruit and they're going to call it a different name and so i think that this what you're teaching is very much instrumental oh, and part of our yeah and that's what i'm saying brain. when i when i get in front of people like they're so again everyone's so busy and nobody wants to put anything else and and just how i change that that five minutes of communicating with somebody from the moment of i don't want to talk to you to wow, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. What can I do? You know, in the space of a couple of minutes. But it is, it's direct interaction. I, I haven't found a way to be able to communicate it through text or through an email. You seem to be a humble man now and you have peace in your life. Uh -huh. Is it hard for you to go into these places where you are again surrounded by anger and misery and hatred? And violence. No. Um, I can, I'm still very introverted and i'm still very isolated mm -hmm. i understand like i again i do feel that this is my mission in life now to my it's all sort of everything comes along to this point where i gotta like i'm really teetering on the edge of exploding into something now yeah. but i know i have to do it and i know as soon as that as soon as that door opens i gotta walk on the stage and i gotta because people are relying on me now mm. i can't run away i can i can perform and i can do my stuff as soon as that as soon as the spotlight's off, then I run away. And I have to get to the point where I, because then everybody's like, oh, I want to talk to you. Where do you go? And I'm out the door. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I got to get better at that. You know, I got to get better, more embracing and, and truly owning what I've invented, what I have. Because I have, you know, that's what it is. Instead it's, of running away and, and feeling, well, I don't deserve it. Is there still a party that wants to self-sabotage yourself? Oh, yeah. 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 And you don't do that because? Because life's good. I get up every morning and I feel great and I move forward. And uh, you know, obviously, I, 
like life only had one outcome for me back in the days, you know, and it was death. Mm. You know, now the whole world is open for me and I just got to move forward. And I'm in this position that I can, I can experience the whole world and I can change. Not saying I'll change the world, but I can change, I can change some people's world, mm-hmm. you know, and just move along. And if I sabotage myself, that's not going to happen because I'm the key to this. You know, it's my story. It's my connection and it's my inspiration. And um, when I'm meeting with people and I'm teaching every seminar, every workshop is different because it's different people's stories and I change it in the, in the second, in the moment with the human interaction. You know, never once do I use the same cookie cutter. Like the banana is there, yes, but I'm not saying, well, what you, have you ever thought of trying a banana? <laughs> <laughs> you don't lead with that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, but I, I, and it's amazing to me how my mind is really evolving in this and, and just awakening and opening that I can be inspired with a, with a, with a quote that I have no idea where it even came from, but it's just exploding, you know, and anybody can hit me like, and I've got something for them. And that's incredible for me now. You know, when I was, you know, back home, I was known as the ghost because I didn't exist. You know, I couldn't exist because I couldn't draw attention. And, and what I do now is basically I'm point, I'm putting a target on my forehead. So if anybody is still after Brian Higgins, they know where to find me. Whereas before I was so against Brian Higgins, I couldn't connect. And it was like, I just got to hide in the corner. You were trying to kill him. Yeah. 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 And but now what I do, like basically I'm in a dark auditorium with four hundred people and a spotlight on me saying I'm Brian Higgins. Owning it, yeah. Yeah. And and I'm honest and I'm open. And I'm not saying this is an advertisement for someone to come and, you know, sniper rifle me, but but it's incredible for me how I can I'm not scared anymore and I can I can embrace it and take it on. So. And so have you been able to identify what allowed you to become successful to encourage your championship, you know, so to speak? Um, it's honesty. You know, I'm I'm telling my story and I'm 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 passionate about it and I'm I'm right here sitting in front of you and it's clear and present that something's happening. Do you hope to do that in a park in Belfast one day when you become an older man? Yeah, I I sort of have this sort of level in me that thinks about well one because I have to go home at some point like mm. I've got my little boy five years old and I know I got to take him home at some point and I've sort of got this silly idea in my head but I got to return a champion mm. you mm. know that that they're going to lie down the red carpet marching on down and but that's like that's sort of going against my my concepts as well of like putting a barrier in front of you so I'm basically saying well I cannot go home until I am a champion until I can be praised which is not the right thing. I'm putting that barrier, you know, so I should just go home tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you should just go. Yeah, and, uh, but yes, that's, because I can, it's just, it's just a strange, strange time for me because I can, like I can, I can embrace people and I can bring community together. There's a lot of. But I don't, sh- I got to say, yeah. there's one community that I fear that is just going to be too much for me. And that's BYU versus the U, because that is the worst. That's the the yeah, strongest rivalry I've ever seen in my life. So, so, with your background in semiotics, did that lead you to an interest in film? Because you're also involved with the Forty Eight Hour Film Festival. No, right? well, film for me, it's always been there. You know, it's it's 
it's my meditation, it's my uh, escapism. And I look back, because I've done a lot of thought, like, why am I so obsessed with film? Like, why does film mean so much to me? And I've sort of come to the conclusion that, like, back when I was six, seven years old, when I was forming my understanding of life, I would get up, like, at two in the morning, two, three in the morning, and I'd watch the old Hammer Horror films, like the old Christopher Lee Dracula mm-hmm. and Peter Cushing, Frankenstein, and... Vincent Price, all yeah. that stuff, yeah. And what I was doing was I was looking to find worse monsters than what I was seeing on a daily basis. And I... So I could see Dracula ripping people's heads off, and I could be more scared of him than somebody getting killed, you know, seeing one on, on the horror, the true life horror in on in daily basis. So that's sort of what I think is where my obsession came from film. But also we... Like back to the Liam Neeson, I promise. The yeah. Liam Neeson story. I was going to ask you, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've never met Liam Neeson, but I was in an elevator with Kenneth Branagh once. Really? But we didn't talk. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, Kenneth Branagh's from Belfast as well. Yeah. And um, so I look at that, and like Northern Ireland is such a small, insignificant country in the world scheme of things. Population is so small. It's just, but everywhere in the world, you can, there's going to be an Irish pub, there's going to be an Irish, you can, you're just a celebrity wherever you go, like people want to be happy with you, but, but again, everyone's had to deal with this, the violence and destruction, and what I alluded to earlier, like, people will want to continue that, because they think it's cool, you know, yeah, I'm going to be, or you're going to just perpetuate it because, well, you killed my brother, so I'm going to kill your brother, so you continue that, you're angry, you know, you want to express yourself. So you pick up a gun, you pick up a bomb, you know. But others look at creativity to express themselves. They want to create rather than destroy. And so again, like the population of Northern Ireland is, is nothing. But you look at the world-class talent that has come out of there, you know, and you look at the ratio compared to like the like America, the ratio of Americans that are world-class is like point zero 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 whatever. But Northern Ireland, we're like, like two percent or whatever, because we've got Daniel Day Lewis, yeah, Daniel Day Lewis, Kenneth Branagh, yeah. Liam Neeson, um, uh, Van Morrison, yeah, um, uh, the Michael, what's his name? Uh, oh, uh, Michael Fassbender, yeah, yeah, and on and on. Then you look at the artists, you look at the sports stars, you know, all the best golfers are from Northern Ireland, <laughs> and that's another thing I always think, you know, because I'm pretty good at golf when I play, and I think well, maybe if I played every day, I could you know, really get that Celtic gene going and go and win the Open. <laughs> you know, it's just there. But that's what I thats what I look back and I think, you know, those guys, they didn't want to pick up a gun, but they needed to, they were angry. They needed to express, you know, and I believe to this day that that's why, yeah. you know, that's why there's such a great ratio. And uh, we it's look as well. a very ancient society. I mean, there's people that believe that during the deluge that Noah went to Northern Ireland and really? that's where he retreated. There's a big belief that Atlantis might have been right around North Ireland. There you go. There's a alternative history to Northern Ireland yeah. that yeah. a lot of people believe has been repressed and that the war there has been re- created to intentionally destroy your culture. Well, well, I'm here clear to, to keep flying the flag. I'm glad you are. Yeah. So uh, I had just a couple more quick questions before we wrap this up. But I was just wondering, so what is your perception of like uh, uh the irish movies that come out you know like um uh, the boxer or uh michael collins like what do you think are those like accurate or 
there's levels. There's some that are like, like, but again, it's entertainment. Yeah. You know, and, and when I was younger, I used to get very angry about it because it wasn't right. Like it wasn't the story. And, and like, like the song Bloody Sunday is totally inaccurate. But again, it's accurate now. Might as well have happened the way Bono says it did. Yeah. But that's the way it is. But when you mentioned the boxer, the boxer is a very good one because there is that level of like Daniel Day-Lewis coming yeah. back and w- not wanting to progress the violence. And like boxing, like you look at like the world champions from, because that's where you can, like a lot of like Catholic Protestant kids will start boxing because you can get your anger out. You know, you don't need to go and shoot him in the face. You can punch him in the face. Yeah. You know, in a in a in a ring where it's it's connected. And so the and boxer, you can unite your people behind that. Yeah. Yeah. The boxer's a really good one that I that I can go along with. But then you've got uh Crying Game. What about uh, that? The, yeah. the crying game again is a different one because it's more sort of based in there's still that level of the IRA and you know, having to go off to the mainland and the crying game's a good film for what it is, but it doesn't really it's not really about the IRA. Yeah. Um uh in the name of the father. Uh, but again, you got to look at it as propaganda. It's the same as like when we watch like Michael Moore films or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I fell into that trap when uh, watching Michael Moore and say, yes, that's exactly how it happened. But then understanding film, you got it's all subjective. There's one of my favorite films from about back home is called Mickey Bo and Me. And it's very hard to find, but it's about like a little Catholic boy and a little Protestant boy that they go to see Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Like they sneak into the cinema. And then they're so excited, like, then they want to p- play Butch Cass and the Sundance Kid. So they go back out into Belfast. Like, it's set in the 70s when it was really troublesome. And then they're using that backdrop as, like, the Wild West. Wow. And it's these two little Catholic and Protestant boys that are just, they're not Catholic and Protestant in their eyes. They're Butch Cass and the Sundance Kid. And they've got to come together. And it's a, such a beautiful little film. But then, of course, things, mm-hmm. you know, they, they have to, they get separated and there's a, but it's it's a really fascinating film, and that, it was from a play originally. So that sounds good. Uh, have you seen War of the Buttons? No. Uh, that that one is uh, about little children, Catholic Protestant. They go to war against each other. Yep. Yeah, it's a pretty cute one. Yep. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about uh, America's perception of the Irish, like the whole getting drunk on St. Patrick's Day? Well, I like to. It's it's pretty much the same way as we su- celebrate the Fourth of July. We all put on fat suits. <laughs> and stuff ourselves with cheeseburgers <laughs> and shoot machine guns in the air. Uh, so it's pretty much, <laughs> again, it's perceptions. Yeah. It is offensive in a sense that that's sort of what Irish is known as, like like a bunch of drunks. Yeah. But I love that uh, the Family Guy episode when uh, they've got Ireland and it's like a futuristic flying cars and they're all like scientists and then one of them says, hey, I've just invented whiskey. <laughs> and they all take a drink and then it's just the end of that. Um, but that's what they also, like God invented whiskey so that the Irish wouldn't rule the world. So. so if there's a person listening who's wanting to make a change in their life and they're interested in you, where would they find you? Where... Can they go see your cinema, uh, seminars? Seminars. Yep. Um, well, you can find me at uh, createrealchange.org, and that's uh, two E's, real, so it's like film reels. That'll still be, I'll still be operating under Create Real Change for the for a couple of months, but I will be changing more into Brian Higgins, because mm-hmm. in the end, it's my story. I got it. That's what I'm trying to move forward to become this thing. You know, it'll be, and I don't, and I would Brian Higgins' real change or whatever, but at the moment, Create Real Change, you'll always find me there. Find me on Facebook, find the, the uh, Create Real Change Facebook page and just follow along. Uh, seminars are few and far between. There's a lot of private ones that I'm working with, obviously, in treatment centers and things that aren't open to the public. But I am 
as I say, moving towards this sort of Brian Higgins entity, and I will be doing more public seminars coming up. Do you have any advice for someone that's afraid to seek help? Do whatever you're comfortable, but do it. You know, take one foot forward. One foot in front of the other gets it done. You know, and don't feel ashamed because there's nothing to be ashamed about. And then the 48-hour film festival? Yeah, the 48-hour film festival. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I run these other film festivals, and the 48 is coming up. It's an international filmmaking competition where you make a film in 48 hours. And in uh, Salt Lake City, it's coming up on the 12th of twelfth of June. 12th to the 14th of June is the filmmaking. And again, it's just it's educational aspects. Everyone's just out there having fun making films. Is there a website for that as well? Yep, 48hourfilm.com. Awesome. And then also if you look at Filmulate, which is F-I-L-M-U-L-A-T-E, Dot com, which is my other system, which is uh, Imaginate, Create, Filmulate, still expression, you know, how can you express yourself through film and uh, communicate to the, the, the masses. So. Awesome. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for coming in here and cool. sharing your story. And you're, you're always welcome to come back on the show again. If, you know, cool. we, we would love to stay in touch and, yeah, keep, you know, following you on this awesome journey that you're doing. Definitely. And I also encourage you guys to check out his TED Talk on YouTube. It's impressive. We'll have it on the uh, the blog when you can download the episode. Um, Sasha, is there anything else? No, I appreciate you, and uh, thanks for helping humans out. It's not enough people do it. so Cool. Thank you. So you can uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Johnny McKeon. You can also hear me on the air from 6 to 10 a.m. Saturdays on Mix 107.9. Sasha, what about you? What's your... Uh... Oh, just get a hold of Johnny and make fun of him. <laughs> Hashtag DJ Juggy. <laughs> uh, actually, Juggy's a real person. That's not... I'll, I'll explain okay. to you about that later. Well, whatever. <laughs> so we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you, everybody. Uh, if you got some problems, really, uh, addictions, if you're chronically depressed, if you have a friend or family members are, give Higgins a try. He seems yep. like a very interesting I'll tell you that man. One thing that I came up because I'm always coming up with like memes and stuff in just different ways. And the one I did this morning was addiction, depression, communication. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah there's, there, there's no point in having such a great life and turning it into a place where you're all alone and isolated and Mm -hmm. just doing it for you because the rest of the world wants you to participate. So there's no point in not doing it. You know, the whole point of this world is to love and experience new things. And the only person that's going to continually isolate yourself is you yourself. So, yep. Cool. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you. in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over that. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any Junction turn us around.